Shaking Christianity, Chapter 5, Part 2 When Christians read the words Kingdom of Heaven or Kingdom of God, terms often used by Jesus in these earlier Gospels, they generally think of heaven being the place you go to after you die. Christ is the figure who saves us so that we can go to heaven, if we believe in him, like it says in John. The Kingdom of God is for people who believe the right things. For Jews, Messiah and the Messianic Age is not about the afterlife. It's about things that would happen here on earth, at a time when the people would come together under the leadership of Messiah and turn to God. It's about the way people would live, how they would treat each other, and what would happen when this time arrived. And this is the sort of thing we find in these other three Gospels. Jesus is talking about the Kingdom of God as something that is happening. Something else that was happening at the time was the Roman Empire, and the predominant Jewish expectation seems to have been that the coming of the Messianic Age at this time would mean the overthrow of the Romans, with the Messiah leading the way. And this expectation can be seen in a story that has been told countless times in churches and at Sunday school, one that features in all four of the Gospel stories. The feeding of the 5,000, along with the feeding of the 4,000 recorded as another event in Matthew and Mark, are stories about a time when Jesus miraculously feeds thousands of men with a few loaves of bread and some fish. In the telling of these stories, the attention is always on what's happening with the bread and the fish. How did, he, how did they multiply like that? A few loaves and fish and all those people were fed? Some people think that Jesus encouraged people to get their packed lunches out and share them around. But did everyone pack bread and fish? Well, they might have, if these were the staple foods for people of Galilee. But there are baskets full of leftover food after people have eaten their fill. It seems unlikely. And it does say in the 4,000 story that they had nothing to eat. But then, if we turn our attention away from this and look at all these men strewn about this place. 4,000, 5,000 of them, it says, in an out-of-the-way place. That's a lot of people, particularly for first-century Galilee. There are a number of indications that these are men who are expectant, and looking to Jesus as Messiah, they were ready to take on the Romans. In Matthew, for both stories, the writer gives us the number of men who were there, and says this was, besides the women and children. But the writer of Matthew probably copied Mark, who says this was the number of men. So this would mean Matthew added the bit about women and children. Luke follows suit with Mark and says they were men. In the feeding of the 4,000 story in Mark, they'd been there for three days, in this remote place, without food. 4,000 men don't usually go out into the middle of nowhere for three days without food. It's possible they did because they were so distracted and were thinking of nothing but following and hearing Jesus. More likely that they were waiting, longer than they expected, waiting for something more than a sermon and a picnic, and Jesus wasn't complying. The same story in John, and here again it's 5,000 men, and Jesus withdraws to a mountain by himself because he knows they intend to make him king by force. 
These men were Jews, and they had Jewish expectations of Messiah, the expectations of a subjugated people. They wanted the balance of power to change. And when they were sitting there, waiting, Jesus was presumably giving them something like the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of God that Jesus was talking about seems like it was different to what these men had in mind. His words speak of another type of change. Blessed are the merciful, the peacemakers. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. Love your enemy. Do not condemn. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not worry about your life, about tomorrow. He probably wasn't talking about raising an army and besieging the Roman fort in Jerusalem. When has military conquest ever brought about a godly kingdom? He's teaching peace and goodwill despite the circumstances. And this would have been a turn-off for a lot of people. The Messiah was meant to change the circumstances. These are different ideas. Judaism has rejected Jesus as a false messiah because he didn't fulfill prophecies and the expected messianic age doesn't appear to have come about with his arrival. About one generation after Jesus, their land was devastated after an uprising against Rome and the age to come was to be dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. The Jewish people were in for a terrible ride not what was supposed to happen following the arrival of Messiah. It's not surprising that Judaism doesn't agree with the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. It is hard to know what to make of this kingdom of God that Jesus spoke of. It was different to people's expectations. It didn't involve the sort of action that those 5,000 men had in mind. But... Was it essentially about no action at all? Was it primarily about believing a story? In Matthew, Mark and Luke, he's not saying just look to me and believe. When he talks about things that distinguish people who follow his teaching, he is talking about real change that involves action, living with integrity. Mahatma Gandhi, in an interview with British journalist Millie Polak in 1920, quote, There is no need for me to join your creed to be a believer in the beauty of the teachings of Jesus or try to follow his example, unquote. The kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed, it was revolutionary, but in a different way. It turned the values that people lived by upside down. Nelson Mandela, in his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, wrote, Our Messiah, whose life testifies to the truth that there is no shame in being oppressed, those who should be ashamed are they who oppress others. Unquote. The Christian Church went on to oppress others on the basis of correct or incorrect belief. So what did the followers of Jesus believe? This is generally seen to be a straightforward question to answer. They were Christians. They were Jews. They were Jewish Christians. They wrote stuff in the New Testament, so all we have to do is read it. 
not very helpful. In my youth group days, it was called quiet time. You go off on your own somewhere and spend time with the book. You open it to wherever you feel led and try to make sense of it. Well, not really. Christian commentary makes sense of it. What you do is open it up to see what God has to say to you today. And this idea is definitely not helpful. Reading a document that condemns a group of people and makes them look foolish doesn't mean you're going to come away with a good understanding of what they believed, particularly when you think so highly of this document. In the second part of the introduction to this podcast, we looked at the piece de resistance of anti-Semitism in the New Testament, Matthew 27:25, where the Jews cry out, His blood be on us and on our children. A curse on the Jewish people within an anecdote that made its way into all four of the Gospel stories. One where the Jews are depicted as the ones who rallied and cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus, written for the vexation of Christians, who saw Jesus as their man amidst this evil throng. Reading these documents to find out about what the followers of Jesus believed is like looking through windows with smudges and graffiti and stickers on them that have been put there by people who want to tell us what we should think of the view. The view is obscured by these things. And I think this is a helpful analogy. It works. Misleading portions of text are there. We've seen enough evidence for this. We have to look past this text that tells us what to think about people. The John window would actually be more like a very nice stained glass window. The whole idea is that you look at the window and its depiction of characters in the story. But Matthew, Mark and Luke provide a better view. On the Matthew window, we've got, Let his blood be on us and on our children. This verse and the accompanying anecdote is a crude depiction of an event designed to reinforce the idea that the Jews killed Jesus. So when you see Jews, you're supposed to remember that. Here's a closer look at the interpretation of this verse that naturally flows from Christian ideology. Reading the commentary in my NIV study Bible about this verse, let his blood be on us and on our children, quote, A chilling response by a bloodthirsty crowd. It has often been used to justify the persecution of the Jewish people. It should be noted, however, that it was not God but the people themselves who uttered these words. There is no evidence here that God granted their request. If there was a fulfilment, it was most likely in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Unquote. This is a twisted analysis of this verse from people who are juggling ideas. They're scholars who are reading something written by an ancient xenophobe but they're constrained by the idea that it's God's infallible word. So firstly, they make the assumption that it's true. And then they mention how it's been used to justify the persecution of the Jewish people, which happened because people were gullible enough to believe it was true. Then they make an excuse for God with a fairly obvious statement. Quote, It should be noted, however, that it was not God, but the people themselves who uttered these words. Unquote. Pretty clear that the people are the ones who are supposed to have uttered these words. No confusion there. 
This is justification for the inclusion of this text for people who believe God authorised it. Supposedly, these scholars are saying these words were uttered by the Jews, so God had no choice but to put it in there, even though he knew what would happen. Then we have, quote, There is no evidence here that God granted their request, unquote. No evidence. So we're looking for evidence here in the text, like it doesn't say there was a voice from heaven saying, All right then, you, you said it, just you wait. Or is it because it doesn't say it happened there and then, and like we don't notice in the text that the wrath of God somehow smited them? Maybe there's no evidence that God granted their request, but there's plenty of evidence that the Christian church did. But no, the next thing they say is, if there was a fulfilment, it was most likely in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and the absolute carnage that this involved. But hang on a sec, let's go back a bit. They said, there is no evidence here that God granted their request. Right, so the request was the Jews saying, let his blood be on us, etc. And we're talking about God granting this request. No evidence that he did. Next sentence, if there was a fulfillment. So clearly, if God did fulfill this request, he would have organized the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, which was the culmination of the first Jewish-Roman war in which the Jews were fighting for independence and they were massacred. These modern-day Christians are assuming that if there was a fulfilment, it would involve death and destruction to a great many Jewish people. But there is no evidence here in the text that that should be what God wants to do to them as a result of this guilt. This assumption was made in the Christian commentary. So the idea that many Jewish people should die is not there in the text. The text poses the question, and Christianity has historically given the answer. These commentators are drawing from another aspect of the Christian psyche. All these assumptions, all these people so willing to be told what to think, the power of words when they become sacred texts, when faith is focused on the text more than on the events that the text is describing. But the window analogy breaks down because these things that obscure the view, these misleading portions of text, have been weaved into the story. They've become part of the view, and they're not necessarily easy to identify. So in this way, this has been a highly effective subliminal message campaign. One or two billion people have been taken in by it. Deceptive Christian commentary can make perfect sense when assumptions have been buried in the Christian psyche for long enough. And the people responsible for the misleading text were not stupid. They've sold a seemingly impossible proposition. I've probably said this before, but it goes something like this. This group of people, these Jews, they were bad. Take no notice of them. They're evil. They killed Jesus, all of them. They denied him. They were stupid. Don't look over there. This is not a Jewish movement. His followers? Don't be silly. They disappeared or became Christians. Not sure which, but it doesn't matter. Look over here. Our name says it all. We're the ones. No, okay, they were our founders. Yes, they were Jews, but... 
they handed the baton to us. We are the custodians of truth here. Peter and John, and that, yes, it, it was all passed on directly from them to us. Then it became known as Apostolic Succession. What I'd like to do now is focus these questions about what the Jewish followers of Jesus believed on Peter the disciple. Let's narrow things down a bit and see what there is to know about what this man Peter believed. Because what he believed is probably going to be pretty much what they believed. And it simplifies things. Peter was a Galilean fisherman who followed Jesus. What did he believe? So we'll recognise that he was a Jew who was immersed in the culture of his time and place. And we'll see what we can add to that. He's a prominent character in the New Testament, and there are extra-biblical documents that are also going to tell us some things about him later on. Peter is going to be our protagonist, someone we're going to endeavour to get to know. And then as we traverse the landscape of this first-century drama, viewed through these documents, we're going to look at some issues and incidents from Peter's perspective. Looking from his perspective will also be helpful in understanding the nature of certain relationships. The relationship between movements that we've been considering, and then some more personal relationships. So a brief introduction to Peter. Working from the story in Mark, Peter makes an entry in the, in the first chapter. Jesus goes into Galilee and is proclaiming the good news of God. Quote, The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Unquote. Notice it, it doesn't sound like he's saying the good news is to be withheld until a later date. Jesus then walks beside the sea and he sees Simon and his brother Andrew casting nets. Jesus says, Come, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they up and follow him, leaving their nets behind. The first brother here is our man. His name was Simon, son of Jonah who Jesus later names Peter. But this name is, of course, a translation, and so are the others. The language they probably spoke was Aramaic, and in Aramaic this name was Cephas, meaning rock. So this was like a nickname that Jesus gave him. To avoid confusion, I'll call him Peter because it's the familiar name that English speakers know him by. Peter became one of Jesus' closest disciples. A number of times he appears to be their spokesman, and he throws himself into various roles, so his character becomes evident to some degree. He also pledges his allegiance to Jesus emphatically, and then denies him just before that rooster crow that we've all heard about, as the story goes. That'll do for now. We'll get to know some more about Peter as we go along. For now, he's just going to be representative of his community, the followers of Jesus. In the third chapter of this podcast, the interview with the rabbi Philip Kaplan, I asked what Peter might have meant when he said to Jesus, You are the Mashiach, or Messiah. And Phil gave us an idea of what Mashiach probably meant for a Jew in the first century. I think the Jewish idea of what Peter meant is bound to be closer to the mark than the Christian idea. But in truth, we don't know what Peter was thinking, neither do we know what he believed. 
Judaism has distanced itself from Jesus and this whole episode, and Christianity has made enormous blinding assumptions about Jesus and his followers, largely based on superstitious belief in a book. But the book is pretty much all we've got. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, quote, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Unquote. So, looking at this exchange through a window that has instructions on it for what we're meant to think about Peter and Jesus is not necessarily very helpful. Particularly when a word like Christ is used in place of a word like Messiah. My old Bible uses the word Christ in this passage. So they've changed it since then, which is a step in the right direction. Gaining a better appreciation of the events behind the text means identifying these instructions for what they are, along with other questionable material, because it's within the text. An example of this would be, in reading this passage, we're given the idea that even though Peter was a disciple of Jesus, he was totally uninformed, didn't know what was going on. This idea about the disciples is there for our instruction in a number of places around the New Testament. It implies that what the disciples did believe was wrong, and it's questionable because what the disciples believed is likely to have been pretty close to what their rabbi was teaching them, likely to have been closer to this teaching than what this writer believes. Speaking more generally about the identification of questionable material, anti-Semitism is a key indicator, and there are also other inconsistencies to look for. We've seen that people who have been adding fiction are Gentile Christians, so incongruous Christian material is questionable. And so is any material where a motive can be found for its inclusion by these Gentile Christians and or the church. These things don't necessarily mean a passage is inauthentic, but they do mean it's questionable, if you're willing to accept that any of this editing was going on at all. Okay, I have to pause here with an aside. I said I'd make the most of any evidence for the idea that Jesus taught that he was the Christ of Christianity. And I've just noticed that the passage in Mark that I just read out, where Jesus is on the subject of Messiah, because Peter made that pronouncement, just after that, Jesus goes on to talk about his death and resurrection. So this is Jesus linking the idea of Messiah with his death and resurrection, which looks like a link from Messiah to the Christ concept. It does, doesn't it? You know, I really am hoping to find something that I can highlight and tease out for the other side of this argument. It's hard to look like I'm being objective here. The problem with this one is, as we saw in the last episode, Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, this could have been his intention. But if it was to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, 
And if this is the most important part of what people need to believe, it's questionable because the disciples of Jesus apparently didn't believe it. These writers seem to be pointing out a distinction between their belief and that of the disciples. So this link between Messiah and Christ just happens to involve something that Jesus didn't teach his disciples. That should tell us something, shouldn't it? Who arranged this? Jesus? God? Or a Christian copyist taking license to put in a pointer for later belief? It's questionable, and you are allowed to ask these questions. This writer might have had Peter respond to Jesus' talk about death and resurrection with, Yes, of course, Jesus, and with this accomplished, we'll all have our sins forgiven, just like you taught us. This would have affirmed that Jesus taught the Christ concept. But there are writers here who clearly don't want the Jewish followers of Jesus to look like they're on the right track. And this is fortunate. If they had have written the disciples in as Christians, and they would have done a far better job than I did there, the difference between what these writers believed and what Jesus' disciples believed would be gone from view. This is a real story, being handled by people with very real sectarianism. Okay, back to the reasons why a passage might be questionable. A portion of text might be questionable because a potential motive can be seen behind it. A motive that a copyist, for example, might have had to add something. Something like this would be the Matthew version of the passage we've just been looking at. The passages in all three synoptic Gospels. So in the Mark version, the, the exchange between Peter and Jesus ends with Jesus saying, Don't tell anyone. And then it says, He then began to teach them. And the main point of what he then says is, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus is on the subject of Messiah. He's talking about who he is, and he continues to talk about who he is and what he's going to do, according to Mark. So Luke follows suit, copying Mark in this. But Matthew has an added passage in the middle of this, where Jesus switches and talks about Peter and who he is. Matthew 16:17. After Peter says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus replies, quote, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then, emphasis added, he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Unquote. A very beneficial little passage for the Church of Rome, with their story that Peter was their first Pope. So there's good reason to think they may well have squeezed it in there. Three reasons, actually. It's incongruous. It adds to Mark's story, which Matthew is most likely copying from. And it's dripping with motive. In Mark, after Jesus tells them he must suffer and die, far from recognising that this needs to happen, like a disciple who's been taught sufficiently by his rabbi, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. And Jesus says to Peter, quote, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Unquote. 
Luke actually omits this, but Matthew keeps it. So in Matthew, Peter is the rock upon which Jesus will build his church, and he's going to get the keys of heaven, and he's going to have the power of bounding and loosing. And then next thing, he's Satan's mouthpiece. As we go back to the storyline of Mark. But going back to Mark, we've seen that Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, is questionable which means Peter's response to it, along with his condemnation as an instrument of Satan, is also questionable. That's probably enough of that sort of thing. The way you read the New Testament gets messy when you go down this rabbit hole. Christianity, on the other hand, is very tidy and neat by comparison. You just read and believe, trying to work out the meaning of the text. As a system of belief, it's a nice package that answers a lot of questions and gives people a firm foundation with the affirmation of widespread agreement. A lot of people are satisfied with this. So why mess with it? The reason I'm doing this is because there's a good option between the two conclusions that most people come to about the New Testament. To either believe all of it or believe none of it. To read it like it's a book that God wrote or to read it like it's all pious fantasy, with nothing worth discovering behind it. There's another way to read this stuff, but it does involve judging for yourself. So, I've had the rubber out, saying we should rub out bits of text in the New Testament that are suspect, and this is offensive to a lot of people. If you wonder about the Christian reverence for this literature, try suggesting this as a good idea at a Bible study and see what happens. In a matter of moments, you'll go from someone with good visitor status and access to the tea and bickies to an instrument of Satan, going at God with that rubber as if it could somehow make bits of him disappear. Bible study is not about deciphering the truth behind the book. Christian Bible study is about reverentially receiving the truth of the book. Is there truth in the book? Of course there is. There's reason to have confidence in material that rings true, or where there's little reason to believe anyone would have made it up. And I think there is plenty of this in the New Testament. In the Gospels, there is plenty of material, particularly in the teaching of Jesus, that is contrary to the later teachings of the Church. And this is a strong indicator of material that hasn't been inserted or changed by the people I've identified as responsible for this sort of thing. I think there's been a significant hands-off respect for the teaching of Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels. Another sort of example of something that rings true would be in the passage I just read, where Jesus warns his disciples not to tell anyone about the Messiah thing. For a popular leader, getting the word out that you might be the Jewish Messiah could lead to an uprising. And we've seen other evidence that Jesus might have been avoiding this. So there's reason to believe he would have said this, and little reason to believe it would have been added. It's also pretty clear that the Messiah thing was a big issue, and the dialogue between Jesus and his disciples, with the Messiah question being up in the air until Peter says to Jesus, you are the Mashiach, or Messiah, before being told to keep it quiet, is entirely fitting. So, let's go back to that time and place, this exchange between a first century rabbi and his followers. 
I don't know about you, but I've got my rubber out and I'm not afraid to use it. What is Peter thinking when he says, you are the Mashiach? What does he believe about Mashiach or Messiah? There are two things that seem pretty clear. As a Jew, Peter would have had ideas about this figure in keeping with interpretations of the time. An anointed king, a deliverer, a leader of the people, the one who would usher in the Messianic age. And secondly, as a disciple of Jesus, Peter's ideas about this must have been reshaped by what Jesus taught as their rabbi. So we combine the Jewish Messiah concept with Jesus' teaching, and what did Peter and his friends believe about the Messiah concept? Yeah, still don't know really. The Jewish world of the first century didn't just have one system of belief. There were a number of groups with quite different ideas. Various theories about a lot of things, then as now, including ideas about Messiah. The three main groups seem to have been the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Modern Judaism is derived primarily from the Pharisees, who were the popular religious leaders of the people. The popular idea about Messiah in the first century seems to have been that he would establish a Jewish kingdom after overthrowing the Romans. And this sort of idea is what has carried through to modern Judaism. This belief involves prophecies in the Jewish Bible and Jewish tradition that I'm not at all familiar with. But in my understanding, if you follow this line of thinking about Messiah through the first century and towards modern day Judaism, although other Jewish groups would have agreed, you're following it primarily through the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, there's an over-the-top condemnation of all Pharisees by Jesus as the most vile hypocrites. But this doesn't ring true. Sources outside the New Testament don't give the impression that the Pharisees were so bad. These passages in Matthew seem to have a similar theme to what we've seen in John, except it's directed at the Jewish religious leaders rather than the people. And remember, Matthew is the one that has the Jews crying out for the death of Jesus to be their fault. Have a read of this passage, Matthew 23. Jesus is really letting loose on the Pharisees on behalf of people who really hate them. In the real world, it's a stretch to call anyone evil. Talking like this, using this sort of language for a whole diverse group of religious leaders who are respected by the people, even if there was some serious failings among them, seems incongruous when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, for example. Quote, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you snakes, you brood of vipers! How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Unquote. Your synagogues. Jesus is a Jew, isn't he? Maybe he has disagreements with the synagogues that the Pharisees go to, as opposed to other synagogues. But it seems the Pharisees would have gone to just about all the synagogues. This condemnation has a bit too much of a wide range. On the other hand, the rhetoric in this chapter does seem to demonstrate a significant understanding of first century Jewish ritual and practice. But I don't think Jesus is responsible for this barrage. Although it does seem like he wasn't in league with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, 
and that they were no fans of his. They're depicted as his opponents in all four Gospels, which includes some more believable passages. Mark chapter 7 has a far more reasonable rebuke of the Pharisees. So what Jesus taught Peter about the Messianic age might not have lined up with the teaching of the Pharisees. The next group, the Sadducees, were economic and social elites who clearly had values that were contrary to those taught by Jesus. But the Essenes, the Essenes are missing from the entire New Testament, which is a very conspicuous silence. Although they're recorded to have lived in communities that were removed from regular society, the first century Jewish historian Josephus also says they were in every town. They were a significant group and their presence would have been influential. The other groups are mentioned many times in the New Testament. They play prominent roles as Jews who opposed Jesus. The Zealots are another group. This political party makes an appearance in the name of the disciple Simon the Zealot. They wanted to take on the Romans, not the sort of thing that Jesus was advocating. But one of his disciples was a zealot. Curious. Was he a reformed zealot? Or does this say something about this group and their plans? Taking Jesus' teaching into consideration, maybe he was trying to turn things around by teaching a representative of a faction that wanted to go to war. But that's beside the point. Um, or maybe Simon joined Jesus because he was convinced he was the Messiah and would still end up leading them to victory. Who knows? All we have is a name. The thing I'm onto here is there is no mention of the Essenes. While there are many similarities between the beliefs of the Essenes and the teaching of Jesus and John the Baptist, and also a community referred to as the Jerusalem Church in the Book of Acts, Good descriptions of the Essenes can be found in The Jewish War, written by Josephus, and Every Good Man is Free, by Philo of Alexandria, among others. These writers provide the following information about the Essenes. They don't have personal possessions, rather they share everything they have. They live modest and simple communal lives with a common purse, from which they provide for the sick and those in need. They are for frugality and against luxury. They're against warfare and slavery. They are peacemakers. They respect the elderly. They don't swear oaths. And they have a stoic regard for hardship, pain and death. They also renounce marriage and pleasure. Philo says there are no children among them and they're mostly old men. Josephus says they adopt children in order to instruct them. These writers do seem to be observing from a distance. They also describe them as people who seem to have been a bit obsessed with the temptations of the body and are striving for virtue, who believe in the immortality of the soul and, according to Josephus, a place reserved for the souls of the just and another for the souls of the wicked. I'm sure the Essenes would have been a bit more three-dimensional than these descriptions give them credit for. This silence in the New Testament in regards to the Essenes could mean that they were just minding their own business and there was never a good reason to mention them, 
they had nothing to do with our story. Or it could mean that they had a lot to do with it and they've been taken out of the picture for some reason. Let's put a few things together here. We've made a distinction between the later writers of these gospel documents and the people they're writing about. Parts of the Gospels have been written by people who didn't have a good relationship with Jews. In places, these people can be identified as Christians. These writers appear to have had a particular interest in the part that Jews should play in the story. And this part is often for bad Jews who are opposed to Jesus. So this means Jews who had contrary ideas to Jesus, they feature in the story as bad people which maybe leaves no part for Jews who are with Jesus, as far as these writers are concerned. Because how could they have been bad? Well, the author of John isn't worried about this quandary. He gives them a part to play as evil people who want to kill Jesus. But he thinks we'll believe anything. We know Jesus had a following, but the existence of this following people beyond the disciples who were truly with him, seems to be missing. So maybe, and I think this deserves some consideration, maybe they've been deleted from the story by people who don't want there to be any good Jews. Jews who had a greater claim as the people who followed on from Jesus and his disciples than the Christians did. The following of Jesus was a significant Jewish movement. Were they associated with the Essenes? And did the Essenes have another concept of Messiah and the Messianic Age that fits with Jesus' teaching? I don't know. In the next episode, I'm going to try and bring together the fragments of thought that I've been pushing ahead of me as I've written this and then get an idea of where to next. We're heading towards Acts of the Apostles, a book with more Christian assumptions than you can poke a stick at. Please rate and review this podcast. I would appreciate the feedback. And subscribe if you want to come on this ride and see where it goes. Thanks again for listening.